Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello and welcome to Politico's 2016 Nerdcast, where we bring you the stories behind the stories and geek out on this amazing circus of an election. It's Thursday, October 6th, and I'm Kristen Roberts, national editor. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. Zero. That's how much Donald Trump paid in personal federal income tax over more than a decade. $37 million. That's how many people tuned into Tuesday night's vice presidential debate. 84, the percentage of Ohio Republicans Donald Trump is winning. And 24, the share of the vote that Gary Johnson is picking up in his home state of New Mexico. Grab your calculators and enjoy the 2016 Nerdcast. Here we go again. Hello, Scott Bland. Hello, Kristen. How are you? Hello, Hadas Gold. Hello. And Charlie Matassian. Hey, Kristen. Welcome back to Ken Vogel. Hey, great to be back after a week on the trail with the Trump campaign that I managed to survive. But will you survive the Clinton campaign? Oh, this is a good question, and I'm excited to find out. We've got another great question from one of our awesome listeners. Say hi to James Dunn from Dublin. Hi, guys. Hey, James. What's your question? Uh, my question, I don't want to tempt fate, but it presupposes the Clinton win. Um, it current concerns what will happen if normal politics returns to the GOP. So if the Republicans manage to reboot and find a normal Republican candidate for 2020, is Hillary destined or doomed to be a one-term president? That's a good question, Charlie. Well, I think there's been an unusual degree of discussion about uh, 2020 during this election, uh, which is an unusual amount of talk about a future race before a present one is finished. And I think that reflects the unpopularity of the two nominees. So it's not really unexpected that people's eyes might be on the horizon. And certainly if you talk to Republicans, there are many Republicans who think that nearly any one of the 17 candidates who ran other than Donald Trump would have given uh, Hillary Clinton a better race and may have uh, defeated her. But, but I think the idea in, the, in this talk, and there is talk out there about her being a one-termer, uh, is very uh, awfully premature uh, because there's so many variables that can affect that, including what style of president she chooses to be, what her agenda is. I mean, you could almost envision a scenario in which Hillary Clinton uh, takes office, and obviously it will be a very polarized environment, and there will be a, a great deal of hostility coming from uh, a Republican Congress if it remains in Republican hands, and, you know, there will be a trigger uh, when it comes to uh, preparing the articles of impeachment, I think, no matter who gets elected, unfortunately. But you could envision a scenario in which she, she follows a model that she followed when she was in the Senate, where she was something of a workhorse, worked very hard behind the scenes to win the respect of her colleagues, uh, treats the institution of the Senate and even the House with, with respect and wins over some of her foes. Uh, and I think you'll see, you could see that, that Hillary character, which would certainly dispel the idea that she's secretive and a less than truthful politician. Um, so can she transcend that image? I, I don't really know. Uh, that is really the big question about whether it will affect whether she's a first term or not. The other, the other thing I think that's important to consider, James, is 
the idea that, yeah, she might be a weakened uh, president. And it's not just uh, the danger is not just on the Republican side. It's also on the Democratic side. Uh, you can envision a scenario in which uh, progressives are very unhappy with her agenda or uh, Hillary Clinton because they go in with some degree of suspicion about her. And she could get a tough challenge on the left, because after all, all of the energy uh, in, in our system is on the wings of the parties. It's nowhere near the center. And I actually hear some Democrats suggesting that they would like her to come in and preemptively say that she would only that she would only serve for one term and not run for reelection, partly because of what you're suggesting, that the progressives might not be with her, partly because of the questions about her health, partly because they there are already concerns that we would immediately upon her inauguration and the keeping of the House by Republicans maybe even the keeping of the Senate, we would go to our respective corners and just have, you know, tremendous partisan trench warfare for the full four years, and then Democrats might be served with sort of a fresh start in 2020. That's lunacy. Perhaps, but I hear Democrats actually saying it. And it's not just Democrats who are Sanders supporters or Clinton haters. It's Democrats who are sort of like party loyalists who say, you know, these forces suggest that this might not be a bad idea. Thank you so much, James. Thank you, guys. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, James. Let's get to our first data point. It is zero, and that's how much Donald Trump paid in federal personal income taxes for at least four years, according to the Washington Post and Politico, and perhaps 18 years, according to the New York Times. Now, after this big story came out over the weekend from the Times, Trump's people began spinning this as just his business genius. And Clinton's people kind of took a minute to see that knocking the guy for taking deductions might not work so well, given the fact that every single one of us around the table takes every deduction we possibly can. But now they're playing it as a knock on his business success, which is key to his entire story. Let's listen to the ad that the Clinton people are running. He's selling himself as a brilliant businessman. I'm really a good businessman. I'm so good at business. Oh, this guy lost almost a billion dollars in one year. That doesn't sound particularly brilliant to me. How do you lose $915 million in a rising real estate market if you're the great real estate genius? That makes me smart. Does that mean the rest of us are stupid? I'm worth billions. I'm a successful businessman. But I don't pay any taxes. But you, you make 15 bucks an hour. You pay the taxes, not me. Ken, what's the argument that works here against Trump? I think it is the argument that we heard in in this ad for the most part. I mean, it's this idea that he is not the businessman that he claims himself to be. That is the basis for his candidacy. It's from the minute that he came down the escalators at Trump Tower in June of 2005 to anou- 2015 to announce his candidacy. It seems like it's been 2005 that long. It does. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's that he, that he is running as a, as a, a businessman whose uh, skill in business is applicable to running the government, that he's going to get the government to run more efficiently. Well, when you lose $916 million in a year, you kind of lose that claim to some extent. And I think it was smart for the Clinton folks to mostly avoid the uh, deductions argument because you see that that's one that the that Trump is 
sort of more equipped to be able to deal with. You saw it in the vice presidential debate where Mike Pence tried to turn around every question that Tim Kaine posed him about this by saying, do you take deductions? And of course the answer is going to be yes. Mm-hmm. So the, their most effective argument, the one that they're making, I think successfully is that uh, this shows, this this calls into question the fundamental basis argument for his candidacy. Right, because... The not paying taxes thing, I think his supporters and some of other people that might be watching that will say, well, if he knows how to get around this and save himself money, imagine what he can do for the country. If he can find a way around things and save us a bunch of money, uh, obviously, you, it's not, you can't really equate paying taxes versus running the government. But that's why that not paying taxes argument does not work except for a small group of people because the vast majority of people do not like the IRS and do not like paying taxes. Yeah, I agree with uh, Hadass because I don't. I don't think the he doesn't pay a fair share uh, argument would have been particularly effective. Uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, because he doesn't really frame himself as uh, a paragon of virtue or a model <laughs> citizen. And so it would have been, I think, uh, it you know, would have just sort of vanished into the ether. What I think is really effective, though, it's partly about the uh, framing him as an incompetent businessman. But I think it's going to be really effective to pursue that angle because it will get under his skin. That's where I think they're right. going that's to get the most value because it's highly personal to him. It will get under his skin. And that's where he really gets into trouble when people get to things that uh, touch on his ego and his personal success, and that's when he goes off the trails and creates, you know, a week full of damaging news. Well, it's certainly what got under his skin in the first debate, and you've got to think that over the next couple days, as Hillary Clinton is getting ready for Sunday in St. Louis, this is one of the key lines that she intends to goad him with. Right, and we saw this come up with the Trump steaks and the Trump vodkas and the, uh, you know, she's brought this up before, like, what happened to all, if you're such a successful businessman, what happened to all of these things? That you that you can no longer buy in the store, right? You can't even find anywhere. Uh, you know, the most interesting thing to me was the way that this popped at this moment. There is a real appetite right now for scrutiny of Trump and Trump's business record in a way that there hasn't been for some time, even after he locked up the Republican nomination. This is that period in which, as you alluded to in introducing this data point. Both the Washington Post and we here at Politico obtained these for, these documents from New Jersey gambling regulators that actually proved, unlike the Times story, actually proved definitively that he did not pay taxes because of his net operating losses. And at the time, those stories just kind of vanished into the ether and didn't really drive a lot of follow-up coverage or you know, debate and back and forth and the cut and thrust of the daily campaign and the way that this story did, it just landed right in the sweet spot right at the time when both the Clinton folks and the media were really doing this thorough examination of Donald Trump in a much more concerted way. Rather, we're doing it in a way that there was a much greater appetite for. Uh, and that's one of the complaints that a lot of the Republican uh, rivals to Trump made during the primary. Where is the tough uh, scrutiny of his business record. It's not all that it's cracked up to be. And several of the of his rivals, including most notably Jeb Bush, tried to come after him for this without success. 
I don't know, you know, I'm not going to blame the media on it because, again, I think we did do yeoman's work in bringing some of this stuff to life. But for whatever reason, the appetite is greater now and it's really resonating in a way that could derail uh, you know, that, that could derail his central well, argument for his is, candidacy. This is a truth of the entire cycle. I, I'm just looking back at something that Eli Stokels wrote for last Monday morning. You know, every Monday morning we, we're popping these stories on what is the state of the race with X number of days out. And one of the most, one of the best paragraphs of this story that I edited was where he enumerated all of the huge pieces of journalism that popped the previous week that got no play. These are the kind of stories that would take down a candidate in previous cycles. So, you know, your point is really well taken, Ken. It's not that the media has not been hitting hard against Trump and Clinton and looking into their histories. It's that sometimes these things take on a life of their own and sometimes they just dissipate. We've all had those stories. Uh, I mean, when we wrote the story about, for example, Steve Bannon being charged with domestic violence, we kind of thought maybe this would really take off. Maybe he'd be forced out of the campaign. Something would happen, and it just disappeared. Nobody really cared. I think with the New York Times, the tax story also got helped along with the drama with which it it came to the New York Times in an, in an anonymous envelope, you know, snail mail to this reporter with the with, with yeah. a Trump Tower return address. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just adds to all the intrigue. Now, obviously, somebody can just walk in and can just write down Trump Tower and mail it from, you know, the right uh, mailbox. And that then it gets the correct zip code. So it doesn't really prove anything. But that, I think, added to the whole, you know, intrigue movie like esque feeling of how these secret tax returns that everybody's been looking after and trying to get from Donald Trump just like landed in somebody's mailbox. You can see the movie. That's the difference is that the tax returns were such an obsession this entire cycle that when we finally got some real pages of tax returns that had been hidden from America, it caught on. I mean, despite the fact that we knew already proven again that there were years in which he paid no taxes, which these tax returns do not prove, but the, is the reason, the, the, the supposition, assumption that the huge loss would, 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 um, would result in him be, being uh, able to, to avoid paying taxes for so many years. And the, and the number of years, the way they calculated also was like not concrete, that it was like somewhat theoretical. Uh, nonetheless, it just goes to show that there's this appetite for this type of stuff right now. And, you know, it also, I think, you know, shows that like, a, a journalism truism that, as you suggested, sort of frustrates us from time to time, us, the media writ large, is like you could be too early on oh, a yeah. story. Yes. Like you could you could come out with a story that has like some really compelling information that is really critical to understanding some phenomenon or some campaign. But the readers aren't ready for right. it yet. Exactly. So but we, frustrating. But we should also be clear, like this was a terrific piece of journalism. Uh, sure. It was partly about the drama. It was partly about the timing. It answered some questions. But it was also just a great piece of journalism uh, in, in part because of the way the Times constructed that story, how they chased it down, how they nailed it. Uh, when you and nailed it. it when the New York Daily News could not. Yeah. They got the same oh, tax returns. They must be kicking themselves. But when you take a look at the care with which the New York Times treated it and and, uh, and when you deconstruct it as a journalist and, and, you know, as an editor, I was looking at how they would have pieced it together, how long it would have taken them, you know, when the lawyers would have been involved, piece by piece, how would you have done this story? Uh, I, I was just incredibly impressed. But my big takeaway from the story, though, was uh, that there 
is no silver bullet that will take down Donald Trump. And that's what's so unique about his candidacy. There's not going to be an October surprise, a singular October surprise that will take him down because that is a huge bombshell of a story. So what it's going to have to be is sort of a barrage of hits that's just nonstop, bombshell after bombshell. That's, I think, the only thing that really could sink his candidacy at this point. I'm fascinated what's going to be the Alicia Machado of this next debate. Right. I mean, that's an interesting question, but it's, I mean, there's a lot of things that are possible here. And this wasn't only, this wasn't the only big storyline of the week. I mean, we were supposed to have a WikiLeaks drop, weren't we, Ken? Oh, yeah. Very frustrating. (laughs) After, actually, after coming back from the trail, uh, my first day back and going to a wedding on Saturday out in Alexandria, Virginia, having this time story pop Late Saturday night when I, you know, admittedly had had a, a few drinks. That was the best email I got all that night. I can't write to. this, Kristen. I'm drunk. Uh, well, it wasn't quite that. I said I could write it, but maybe I should be your, your first option on it. But uh, so, you know, we had that. And then another late night with the WikiLeaks thing, Julian Assange having a press conference early in the morning or relatively early in the morning from my perspective. Uh, Berlin time, which, of course, is 4 a.m. in the U.S. We had a full team ready, you know, all all our alarms were set, woke up, listened to this guy drone on and on for like an hour without, you know, without releasing, in fact, saying that he is not going to release any information. And why would he release information that was critical to the U.S. election at four in the morning in the U.S.? I'm like, now you tell us I could have slept through it. But it goes to show that there is this uh, tremendous interest right now in anything that could be a potential game changer in the race. And that's what the thought was, at least from the Trump folks and from some of his close confidants, including Roger Stone, about what might be in this WikiLeaks thing. Now, we should say that Julian Assange during this rambling press conference did say that he would be releasing additional information about the U.S. election in the coming weeks. But I'm looking at my calendar and I'm like, tick tock, you know. 32 uh, days. Yeah. And uh, and I think that, you know, Talking about like the magic bullet theory that that that, that there's something that could take down Trump and, and you're right there, there there isn't at this point we've we, we've determined that there's so much crazy stuff has been has been you know shown has been proven about him and and nonetheless it doesn't seem to matter with Clinton however I think that there could be an October surprise that could significantly. Uh, eat into her support. And that's why I think that the promise or the teasing of this WikiLeaks dump has has titillated so many across the across the country, across the world. Let's get to our next data point. It's 37 million. That's the incredibly small number of human beings who watched the vice presidential debate. Hadass, the Insta polls gave it to Pence and then everybody, including our own Glenn Thrush, said, eh, who cares? Doesn't matter. Did it matter? It probably helped, you know, Donald Trump to have Pence give a positive performance. But with that, such a small number of people tuning in, I mean, that is that is smaller. I think that's the smallest debate number since 2000 or something for a vice presidential debate. It is incredibly tiny for a vice presidential debate. Granted, 37 million people is still not a number to scoff at. However, that doesn't help Donald Trump because that means that many more people are going to be turning in for the second debate. And they're not going to see this uh, polished politician who seemed so much more reasonable to some people than Donald Trump is present himself as the other half of the ticket. So people just aren't going to see that. So while it was good for the day, I think Jake Tapper said Pence might have won the day, but he's still not going to win the week. Mm. Uh, And I, 
I think that's totally true because the next day, a lot of the news coverage that we saw, the media narrative was while Pence won, he also was just denying things that Trump said. I saw a Chiron on one of the cable channels that said, Pence denies things that Trump's like said, you know, or something like that. It was a very like, he's one of our best read pieces after the debate that night was titled the six things Trump said that Pence denied he said. Right. So it, it would have helped, obviously, if more people had tuned in and seen Pence uh, act the way he did and present a good performance. But at the end of the day, 37 million people compared to the numbers we're going to see on Sunday is going to pale in comparison. And people are just not that interested in the vice presidential debate. It doesn't get the type of hype that everything else gets. Well, I mean, he was actually quite good, but I think you're right on this. Gallup in 2012 did an analysis that looked historically at the vice presidential debate and found that it didn't move numbers almost ever. Is that consistent with the way that you look at it, Scott? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's a, it's a good piece of theater and it's interesting for any number of other reasons. But in terms of actually affecting the uh, the trajectory of a presidential race, it, um, you know, it, it just doesn't happen all that often. Even uh, 2012, when uh, Barack Obama's campaign was very pleased with uh, Vice President Joe Biden for going out into that debate and kind of stabilizing things from their own perspective after Obama's uh, pretty bad performance in the first debate. It wasn't the sort of thing that stabilized the polls. It was one that stabilized the party and right. got the you know the insiders to stop you know worrying on on background to reporters it's, it's a- and and to you know to just everyone to calm down a little bit before Obama kind of reset things for himself in his own second debate. And I think that that is part of what Republican insiders were excited about with this debate. They're, you know, the, the, It's not like these people are going to affect the contours of the race. It's a pretty small group in, in actual sheer numbers, but an influential group. And these are folks who... You know, they they already like Mike Pence. They see Mike Pence as the only palatable thing about the ticket, and they were thrilled with his performance. Um, you know, that's not going to motivate the base. I think the base, you know, is already either they're on board with Trump, and I think they, they mostly are, although maybe not to the degree that they were on board with Romney. Uh, but uh, this is about the party, and this is about 2020. And Pence, you heard a lot of folks saying that Pence emerged as the front runner for the 2020 Republican nomination. I don't know if I'd go that far, uh, but he certainly accorded himself well. It's a, go ahead. Sorry. It's, it's, um, it is definitely a momentum and morale thing, especially for a campaign. And I think that's what you were getting at with the Biden thing with Obama. I mean, if, if Pence had bombed, that would have meant it would have been negative going into the next debate, which is not what a campaign ever wants. Uh, but I did hear some interviews and some focus groups with uh, undecided voters, and granted, these are very small samples, but people were confused because they listened to Mike Pence say some things about Russia and about Syria, and they they heard some different things than what they heard from Donald Trump, and so they were a little unsure about how to drive those two together. That's definitely true. I mean, he outlined a number of very traditional Republican positions, especially on foreign policy and national security, that are not the positions that Donald Trump holds. And in other places, he didn't even try try to defend Trump at all. He just tried to pivot to- entirely. The one that really uh, was notable to me was the nuclear weapons one where, you know, the moderator ticked off, or rather it was Kane. Kane ticked off a number of nations that Donald Trump has said should have nuclear weapons and asked uh, and asked Pence about it. He actually asked Pence, can you defend this? And he just 
pivoted entirely, didn't even try. Well, so the moderator switched off. I think that that gets to something really interesting at the debate that some of our interns were tracking uh, during the night. Uh, Kane mentioned Trump either by name or by he referring to him over 160 times in 90 minutes. And Pence mentioned Hillary Clinton less than half that many times. And I think, you know, Pence was a very, very polished performer, but Kane went out there to absolutely lay into Donald Trump and keep keep Donald Trump as the focus, as the center point of this election. Well, it's and the single most consistently pursued strategy of this camp, of the Hillary Clinton campaign, is to keep the focus on Donald Trump. Now, is there polling that shows this to be effective? The We've talked a little bit in the past about how Gallup has been asking this question of, have you seen news about Clinton or Trump in the last few days? And you can you can see like a pretty interesting track in when Clinton has bumped, with the exception of the conventions, uh, which are, you know, media events designed to make the candidates look good. Uh, when the candidate who has been ahead in those media mentions in that Gallup tracker has also tended to be uh, going down in the polls <laughs> at that point. And, you know, when Clinton uh, over the summer, when uh, her emails were in the news after the FBI announced that it was not indicting her. And then in September, after she had her little medical episode in New York, uh, she outstripped Trump in terms of media mentions. And those correspond exactly with two periods where she was starting to inch down in the polls. But then, you know, here comes Trump with the Alicia Machado stuff with X, Y, and Z other thing with the, with the tax returns, Mm -hmm. which as, as much as any specific hit on him for, you know, not being as good a businessman, he says, or any other thing, just keeping him at the forefront of the news and him Having feeling the need to respond to it and respond to it, I think that's that's ultimately the most right. important she's, piece. She's not on the trail right now. One thing that I uh, have noticed on Pence, and this is something that I feel like the media narrative is starting to go in this direction, was what we talked about that he's setting himself up for 2020, but the kind of the lack of direct defense of Donald Trump. Uh, we saw this at the debate, but then this morning he was on, I think it was the Today Show, and they asked about the Kelly A.I., how she walked back about whether Donald Trump is a role model, and they said, is Donald Trump a role model for children to the vice president? Instead of, you know, vice president saying, of course, like the top of the t- my ticket is uh, role model. He actually started with Hillary Clinton. He said, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are should both be seen as role models and and when and it was such a departure from the tone of this campaign that I was almost thinking like it, would Donald Trump be okay with his vice president in the in the response to that question, starting with Hillary Clinton saying how she's the first female nominee of a major party and that they both should be considered role models for children. Better than the Charles Barkley. I am not a role model. Parents are role models. But I will say it's easier. It's just easier. You know, Kane has an easier job than Pence. I mean, it's easier to attack Donald Trump than it is to defend Donald Trump. And so while Pence performed better than Kane did at the actual debate, I think Kane performed his role better than Pence did. That's interesting. It was really interesting. At the beginning of the debate, I think uh, Cain said some variation on, I trust Hillary Clinton four times in about 10 minutes. And it seemed like that was the direction that it was going, that Cain was there to build up Clinton. And then it very quickly became clear. Obviously, he did plenty of building up uh, his his ticket mate. But it became very clear very quickly that his his role there was to attack, attack, attack. It was very poorly delivered, though. I mean, that was one of the most awkward performances um, that revealed a level of over-rehearsing that we haven't seen since Robot Rubio. It was like, he was like an over-caffeinated mouse. An over-caffeinated mouse? He's just like really like, he'd like jumping in, like pesky, like sort of annoying mouse. This is the moment I wish we were on video because that whole little thing you did with your arms was amazing. <laughs> now, the vice presidential debate, though, was a speed bump and route to the second of three presidential debates. Ken, what do we know about how these two candidates are prepping? 
Well, Donald Trump, uh, we heard a lot of what we thought was misdirection in the run-up to the first debate. He wasn't preparing. He was making fun of Hillary Clinton for her over-preparation, saying he didn't need to do that. Uh, we thought that that was, uh, you know, that that was sort of a head fake intended to lull the Clinton folks into a sense of overconfidence. Because in a normal campaign, that's exactly yeah, the that's type exactly of head fake. But, you do. You but nothing about this campaign is normal. That's right. But and, and in fact, we did have a story uh, in the run up to the debate about the data company that the Trump campaign is paying doing a, a, a very in-depth what they call psychographic analysis of Hillary Clinton's past debates, you know, saying that they were using this tape of her tics, her verbal tics and her nonverbal tics to show to Trump to give him sort of an indication, a blueprint for like when he should pounce and when he should really go hard. And we were like, so we thought that we were revealing what, you know, the, the, their true strategy and the debate came around and in fact, he just sucked. <laughs> and uh, and so it's uh, in this time we're, we're hearing that in fact, they are actually preparing doing sort of more traditional things um, but as to whether it'll work or not, I mean, the, I think some of it was just Donald Trump. You know, in the beginning of the debate, he was very aggressive. He was interrupting her constantly. And by the end, she sort of wore him down, which I think is a little bit ironic given her uh, given his attacks on her for not having the stamina uh, uh, that it was he who by the end seemed tired. I think he'll be much more prepared this debate around. I think we'll see uh, probably a more, not laid back, but subdued perhaps Donald Trump. I definitely think that he'll take the message. We saw that in some of the primary debates where he would sometimes show up and kind of fade into the background. Obviously, he can't do that as easily when he's the only other person on stage. But, I mean, if he doesn't take into account some of the tips that I'm sure he's getting from his team, then maybe all the conspiracy theories that he's purposely trying to lose it are true. Because if he's if he's showing up to this debate and just not and just continuing the same path, it just doesn't work for him. If he comes across as calmer like he did in some of the primary debates, then it'll work better for him. <laughs> not like I've just had big eyes because I can't of course he's not trying to throw it. What? Uh, Republican pollsters who are working for Senate and House campaigns around the country saw a big, scary dip uh, in in their internal numbers after that first debate. And they're all looking nervously. The New York Times had a a big piece this morning about how uh, essentially House and Senate candidates are uh, looking at this and they're going to be watching the second debate on Sunday and deciding afterwards whether or not they need to cut and run. Let's get to our next data point. It is 84%. That's the percentage of Ohio Republicans that Trump is winning, according to a new Monmouth poll. Charlie, what does that number tell you? Well, it's uh, a sign of weakness. Uh, It sounds great. You know, you're winning 84%, but winning 84% of Ohio Republicans is not going to be good enough for Donald Trump to win Ohio because compare that to Mitt Romney, who won 94% of Ohio Republicans in 2012. So if Trump's only picking, you know, winning eight of 10 Ohio Republicans, you know, he's not uh, he doesn't own that state yet, even though there, you know, there are strong suggestions that he's, you know, in a, you know, really well placed in Ohio. As long as that's the case, you're going to see results like the one we just saw in the Monmouth poll, where Hillary Clinton is uh, ahead. And that low percentage of uh, and that's huge. I mean, let's just take a minute to emphasize that because there there have been polls showing Donald Trump pulling away 
in Ohio. So this yeah. is quite a reversal. I agree. I thought that was a little bit of a shocker because, you know, when you take a look at the battleground map and the places where Trump is best positioned to capture a state, particularly a big state, you would point to Ohio as a place where he's really resonating. So I think uh, there were a lot of eyebrows raised at, at this latest poll that broke with the series that seemed to show uh, Trump with some kind of edge. But I think, you know, at the heart of his problem, or at least a big part of his problem in a place like Ohio is, is if, if, if that's true and he's only winning 84% of Republicans, that is why he's so weak. And that explains uh, his weakness in other states, too, because it's a real barometer of his campaign's vitality across the battleground map, the percentage of people he's taking uh, of his own party. Like in Pennsylvania, for example, last month, there was an amazing number. He was only winning 71% of Pennsylvania Republicans. Like So that, that's seven out of 10. He's, he's just giving those people away. And until he gets more coalescence, he's just not going to be able to capture these states. Yeah, and I think that the Ohio poll was really interesting. I'm curious to see what the next few show because we've been we've had a string of you know in a few other states we've we've seen a string of uh, Monmouth polls that have been especially good uh, for Clinton. But also, as as you mentioned, Ken, you know we've seen we've also seen a string of Ohio polls in which it really does you know th- this has been one of Trump's stronger swing states, and so it's you know this is the. the I'm curious to see whether that poll is backed up by the next one, or if if we kind of snap back into uh, into the river. But the 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 point within the poll about the Republicans, Charlie, is is like exactly right. And we we actually just uh, had a, a piece recently about the large number of of what Republican pollsters think are kind of Republican base voters who are parking their vote with Gary Johnson right now on the libertarian ticket, they think. And there's this big open question of whether these folks are going to, in fact, stick around there or if they're stopping with Johnson on the way to Clinton as kind of a a waypoint, or if maybe if they're by the time Election Day rolls around, if they're going to be depressed and they don't show up at all, which could be a big problem for maybe not so much for Rob Portman in Ohio, who is absolutely killing it right now in his Senate race, but for a number of other Republican Senate candidates. And it's the those if those base Republican voters who are not with Trump decide that they're just not going to bother showing up, that could be a big problem. And it's kind of weird. I mean, not to get too too much into Johnson, but like Trump is actually not. I mean, compared to some of the like Republican, you know, orthodoxy standard bearers, Trump is actually not too far. He's much closer in, in many ways to the libertarian sort of suite of issues as far as like a less interventionist foreign policy at one point was more socially laissez-faire although you know he not anymore my friend it's true he's tacked all over the place i mean it's tough to deduce where he is you know and to the extent that he does have any discernible ideology and the campaign is trying to put out any kind of discernible ideology it is closer now to the republican orthodoxy but there were certainly periods of time when he was like closer to the sort of libertarian perspective and that's i mean you see he had like a number of folks who were uh backers of his who had a foot in the libertarian camp i'm thinking of roger stone in particular who had uh you know who had been a supporter of libertarian candidates including gary johnson i believe in 2012 uh and so it is i think notable there was a lot of there was a lot of um, a debate about whether Gary Johnson's candidacy or third party candidate generally, but Gary Johnson specifically would hurt Clinton or Trump more. And I think some of these numbers about Trump's lack of support from the Republican base suggest that maybe he is hurting Gary Johnson is hurting Trump more. It's pretty amazing just that we're having this discussion, you know, 32 days out from the election that we really have no idea what his ideology is. We really don't. I mean, uh, I, I think a very strong argument can be made for Ken's position that, you know, it is kind of has, you know, libertarian uh, flavors in it. And I think you can make a strong uh, case 
along the lines of what you're saying, Kristen, that no, I mean, based on what he said, you know, he has been all over the map and I can't remember a, a presidential nominee who you could have said the same thing about. And ultimately to me, like, I don't even know where I'd put him on the spectrum. I think his ide- uh, his ideology is strictly transactional. Like, I don't think he really has any fixed points on it at all. And I should actually say, I mean, you know, Kristen challenged my assertion that he's has libertarian flavors and the, on the, the two, social on the social issue side. Yeah, but also, I mean, on the two big things, trade and immigration, those are not libertarian. No, they positions, are not. Right. They absolutely aren't. But getting to this idea of a transactional approach to policy, it wouldn't be new. Right. I mean, there have been plenty of presidents and plenty of candidates who do approach things like foreign policy with a transactional mindset to win and, over constituencies, not to win over like business partners. Right. And that's exactly the point. You can't have a transactional approach and have a consistent policy across the board. It's one thing. It's one thing to say when I'm negotiating with foreign powers, um, I want to see what they want to give us to decide what we're going to give them. That's one thing. But to have that kind kind of an approach apply domestically as well and across the board leads to a campaign where where we, we get stuck in a conversation like this where nobody really knows what Donald Trump stands for. However, I'm going to push back on one thing. I think both the Republican and the Democrat in this race have moved American politics to the left, right? Bernie Sanders brought Hillary Clinton, whether you believe it or not, that it's, that it's genuine and sincere to the left. Donald Trump is certainly more centrist than center-right of any Republican candidate we've seen in, mo- in, what, four or five cycles, maybe six cycles. The question this brings up for me is looking at November the 9th and then December and January and February and looking ahead to 2018 and 2020. Both of these parties, no matter who win, face, frankly, a bit of an existential crisis. Who are they? What does it mean to be a conservative in America? But what does it mean to be a Democrat or a progressive? Like these are things that this party is going to have to gra- that both parties are going to have to grapple with. I think that's in- incredibly fascinating, especially I, I think it's almost it- it's almost more interesting for the party that wins. Right. Because usually that the party becomes defined by their president, who is the leader and and kind of takes things over. You know, the Democratic Party became Barack Obama's party starting in 2008 all the way through to now. And uh, whereas the there are large swaths of the Democratic Party that are going to reject the, the idea of becoming Hillary Clinton's party, uh, more so that, you know, there are large swaths of the Republican Party that certainly would not want to be Donald Trump's party uh, if, if he were to win. And that, yeah, I mean, there will be, that's where we'll see the most intense infighting is on the right, no matter what happens. There'll be the battle to reshape the, the, the Republican Party in, in the image of these various competing constituencies that have had a, a sort of uneasy relationship and detente that has occasionally been challenged. I mean, you know, we talk about Trump challenging, but the Tea Party really challenged it before Trump and arguably set the stage for Trump. Uh, I think it's it it is, you know, impressive the degree to which Obama was able to keep some of this stuff together on the left. And, you know, some of these tensions were already rising on the left. And you saw it in his 2008 campaign with Hillary Clinton, who, remember, was like the gun rights champion in mm-hmm. that race. And talk about transactional is now like the, the uh, you know, the gun rights, uh, the, the gun control champion and on a number of other issues as well, where she is tacked, you know, completely to where she thinks 
the Dem or where the Democratic Party is right now. So if she wins, I think that she will uh, have a much harder time than Obama of of holding together those different competing parts of the Democratic constituency. And if there is a Clinton presidency, I think the the, the coming Democratic crack up that is going to be the narrative of that of that presidency. But uh, the one thing that I'm getting increasingly curious about, though, is you know getting back to the Gary Johnson point because unlike you, I like to hear more about the third party candidates. I'm kind of fascinated by Johnson. Been very <laughs> <laughs> disappointed by uh, Johnson's performance this year. I think he's a far less serious and prepared candidate than he was in 2012 at a moment where he really could have shined. But having said that, what is Aleppo? And by the way, I did say oh, I was here, not interested let, let just, in hearing this about This is a little hobby horse of mine, the Aleppo business. Oh boy. It was outrageous that he didn't know. But do you mean to tell me that every politician, every member of Congress knows anything about Aleppo? They don't. It's total bull. The reason... He screwed that up so bad because he was honest about it. The others are much more polished in how they evade these questions. And so he's being called out on it. So to me, it's kind of a phony, false flag issue. But that's just a little hobby horse of mine. Getting back to the third party point. Here's the thing. Like, how long can we as a Western nation that is this diverse and this fractured, how long can we continue going on with a uh, static two-party system? It's incredible to me. Like, the pressures are so strong to blow up our two-party system, yet we still don't have viable third parties. The parties themselves are not static. They're dynamic, and they change, and that's what we're talking about now. Uh, Because it depends on how you define dynamic. They change within themselves, and they fight it out every four years. Ah, I would say Jeb Bush probably thinks it's pretty damn dynamic right now. Right. (laughs) Not dynastic, though. (laughs) Uh, But no, seriously, I mean, this is like, you know, there's all kinds of political science that I'm not smart enough to to have, uh, you know, fully digested on this point about like how parties are moderating influences in American politics because they have to juggle a number of, you know, different competing constituencies within the parties and also find ways to make deals with one another. And, And, you know, to your point, though, I will say like, that that system has been taxed over the last you know few cycles by uh, the Tea Party you know and 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 not not just cycles but and actually by super PACs especially yeah, by super PACs as well right all the, these forces that are basically challenging the parties and the party's ability to sort of bring together these competing constituencies and strike deals with one another you know you, the, these members of Congress. You know, running for re-election, they no longer need the party. They no longer need earmarks. In fact, there are no earmarks to get from the party leaders in exchange for tough votes that their constituents might not like. And they don't need the party to come in and help, you know, clear the field. They need the super PACs. They need, like, Americans for Prosperity, the Koch brothers super PAC, more than they need, you know, John Boehner or Paul Ryan to be in their good graces. And so that does make it harder for the parties to control not just the electoral process, but the governing process. So this conversation has gotten um, dangerously theoretical. Let's bring it back to the practical for a second. Charlie Johnson, who is he playing spoiler for? Well, I, I you know, we, we've see, we see some numbers out there for Gary Johnson. They're not growing, first of all, at the national level. Um, you know, and every once in a while, you'll see a sort of an eye-catching number of him doing really well in a state. Like one number that came out recently was the, you know, he's winning 24% of the vote in New Mexico, which is, you know, you know, pretty important and could swing the balance of a state like that. But I think it's important to remember 
um, that Gary Johnson was winning 23% in December 2011 in New Mexico. And he was then winning 15%. Then he was winning 13%. Because I remember, because I had a blog at the time, and I wrote about Gary Johnson at 13% in the summer of 2012. You know, what is that going to do in New Mexico? Well, in the end, it did nothing. The guy won 4%, not even 4%, 3.5% in New Mexico. And look at what he did nationally. Nothing. Because I think what we found over time is Americans are just not comfortable voting for a third party candidate because they think it's a, a wasted vote. And the number always on election day ends up being much more diminished than the numbers that we see during the run up because of the point that, that Scott was making that for now, pe- some people are parking with Gary Johnson. But when it comes time to pull the lever, you know, they shy away from it. But not even enough people were parking with him at the critical time when he needed the 15% threshold and polls to break into the debate. And I think, like, if you think about it now, after having watched the first debate, like, who would benefit from having Gary Johnson in the debate? It would be Trump because mm-hmm. it was just that he could not keep up. I mean, he, he was... It was the merciless but methodical Clinton attacks on him just over and over, but, you know, citing the record, citing the research, having a third person in there, even if he just is like comic relief, I think would have relieved significant pressure on Trump. And he could have used him as like a foil a little bit. Yeah, I think it would have been great for Trump. But at the same time, I'm, I'm mostly still just outraged as a citizen that he didn't get in. 15% threshold is really hard to get in. I mean, this year is a perfect example of people are desperate for other options, at least to hear from them. Johnson has been saying from the start that the game is over if I do not get in the debate. You know, why wasn't he in that debate? There is just no excuse for a threshold that high. And I wish there had been more public pressure against the commission uh, to allow him in. You know, you know, a, a great example of public pressure would have been more people saying they were going to vote for Gary Johnson in these polls, though. And like, despite all this, all this um, supposed want for for other options, people, you know, very few people are ultimately going to to vote for him. And e- even when there were when there have been no consequences over the summer to answering a poll and saying that we're going to vote for Gary Johnson, not even pulling the lever, just answering a poll, people still haven't. Wanted to go there. I'm starting, a write, I'm starting a writing can, campaign for you, Charlie Matesco. <laughs> you don't want to elect me. <laughs> That's it for us. Goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Kristen. Thanks. Au revoir, Hadas. Goodbye. Have a great week. Adios, Charlie. See ya. Ken, peace. Fun time as always. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our new researcher, Zach Montalaro. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Talk to you next week. We love doing this podcast, and we really love hearing from you. So please keep the emails coming to nerdcast at politico.com and go to your favorite podcast app and leave a review. Thank you for listening. Thank you.